This morning's scripture comes from the book of Joel. We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 23. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. Then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When was the last time you heard a reading in Scripture from the book of Joel? Um, it's a little writing in the um, Old Testament. It belongs to the 12, one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, I, I think of the minor prophets kind of the Maytag repairman of Scripture. Some of you remember the old Maytag commercials? You know, the guy had his nice little Maytag uniform on. He was sitting there in the office waiting, waiting, twiddling his thumbs, lonely, bored. Why? Because the Maytags were so durable and reliable, the phone would never ring for him. That's kind of the feeling I have for these, the minor prophets. It's like the phone never rings. They're the least known, the least read, the least quoted of all the characters perhaps in Scripture. When I was in uh, theology school and Gene Tucker, Dr. Tucker, got to the minor prophets, I dropped my pencil and I swear he got to Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah before I retrieved it. <laughs> why, why are they so avoided? I think part of it is they get bad press. They're, they're pictured as these pinched little men in long, dreary robes. And then there's this whole business of minor, minor prophets, you know. Not major, not major league, not the big heavy hitters, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Truth of the matter is that designation minor is not referring to importance but to um, size. You see, the book of Isaiah, it was large and it required its own scroll in the synagogue. But the, the prophets, the minor prophets, um, it was, they could get all 12 of them in one scroll. I think, though, their brevity is maybe to their advantage. It's, it's readable. It's available. Most of these books of the minor prophets, it's like the size of a New York Times article. I think it was Brendan Gill, who's a theater critic, once wrote of a Broadway play, a tiny little musical pretending to be a big one. You didn't have to worry, though, about the minor prophets. They didn't try to be more than they were. They would take their message, they boil all their water away till there's nothing but the stain in the bottom of the cup. Here it is, one shot, one sermon, it's enough. Another thing I like about the minor prophets is that they didn't separate sacred and secular. They believed that all space is sacred space. God has something to say about everything in life, about how we make and how we spend our money, the people we love, the people we hurt, the wages we wore and the catastrophes we endure. And that's what brings us to Joel. You see. 
This, this little book, this minor prophet, it's centered around a catastrophe. It's a locust plague. Please don't picture a couple of grasshoppers on the azalea bushes, all right? A plague. Joel said they came swarm after swarm. One swarm would come through and, and just about ravage everything, clear up a little bit. Another one would come through. It was total devastation. But here's the question Joel wants to put before the people of God. He wants to know what will their children tell about how they live through these days? Will they say that not only did the locusts devour us, but they devoured our dreams, you see, not just our crops. See, Joel's writing to a people who have become powerless, paralyzed, paranoid, dreamless. It can happen. Something big comes our way. It seems to take a bite out of human life. And it's like we're children looking through a knot hole in the fence. And all we can see is this reality right in front of us. And Joel is saying, don't you know God's not finished with creation? And he writes, he said, there will come a day when once again um, the grass will be green and the fields will be joyful and glad. Okay. Um, he wants to give them back their dreams again. He says, don't you know that I heard a word from God and God said, I will be sending my spirit to you, to your sons and your daughters, and yes, you shall be a people in which the young ones will dream dreams, and the, even the old among you will have visions. Joel knew the story of the people of God, didn't he? I mean, he knew they were a people that were formed by the dream. It was a dream that plucked them out of obscurity and made them dreamers. Abraham and his fire pot and Jacob and his ladder and Joseph and his sheaves of dreams. Generation after generation, these people believed that there was this ladder, this busy highway between heaven and earth and all kind of messengers scurrying about bringing noble visions and dreams. People of the dream. That's pretty important around here. I mean, in so many ways, we're still formed by dreams that are out in front of us like Congregation for Children. Her name was Susan Pinnock. Every day over in the eastern part of the state, I can't remember the name of the town she lived in, but she drove by an elementary school right across the street from her church. And this time of year, she saw children coming to school for the first time, first time they'd been to school. And she looked at them and she thought, how many of them uh, didn't have the right shoes, didn't have the right notebooks, didn't have the right pencils. Um, so many of them of ill health. And um, she said they had inherited poverty, these children, as surely as they inherited their blue eyes and their brown hair. And she knew when the starting gun went off at school, some of these children would start so far back, they would never see anything but the dust of the front runners. But see, that thought, she hitched her wagon to a dream about doing something about it. She said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get my church to be involved as being a change agent for empowerment. In that school right across the street from our church, one woman, one church, and now it's Congregations for Children, the two leading initiatives in the North Carolina and Western North Carolina Conference, hundreds of schools, hundreds of churches. Look, change in life requires more than a good dream, but it begins, doesn't it, usually with a dream? 
man, there's something good possible out there around the corner, but if you don't have a vision for what might be waiting there, you won't ever get to go around the corner and see what might be there. People formed by the dream, but you know what Joel was finding out? In his day, dreamers had fallen on hard times. It was the locust plague. How about us? Wouldn't you say the dreamers have fallen on hard times? Why? I mean, what, what is it that's devouring our dreams? Oh, I think you, some might say it's, it's the, the enmity that's out there in the world between nations and peoples and groups and races. That can disappoint and discourage us. I, I'm going to suggest this morning, dreamers have fallen in hard times today, something more subtle. It's this Western technological spirit we live in. In many ways, that's good. I mean, it's brought us all kind of advantages. So what's bad about it? Well, it often leaves us in a flat, drab, one-dimensional world. There's this great English novel written around the turn of the 20th century. You ought to read it sometime. It was called Flatlanders. And the author suggested that, that we have become Flatlanders, that we don't think there's any reality going on beyond what is well-defined and well-nailed down as facts. That's not the world that Joel saw. Joel saw a world of God-sized dreams that were doorways to another reality. But see, our vision of reality is a lot more limited. What have we been schooled in? Science and facts. We've been taught how to think. I'm not sure we've been taught how to dream. Oh, the dreams still well up get about to our lips and we just can push them back. Let's get on, we say, with things that are observable and provable. You know how it goes, put in long hours, keep good records, produce measurable results. Those are facts, that's not fantasy. You can add them up and you can put them under your pillow at night. Where does that get us? A lot of people wake up about the age 40 and they realize their strings have been pulled by the prophets of prosaic, stick-and-stone life. So much routine work, strung along with so much routine pleasure. And we go to bed at night and we worry about who's going to feed us, (laughs) how much we would pay to sit at the right table. Uh, Bettis, you know, wrote that poem, Dream Peddlery. He said, if dreams were for sale, you know, which ones would we buy? Joel fears that we would just buy little mundane dreams and we will perish. It's the people of God. How do, how do those of us here at Central, I mean, how do we keep alive the thought that, that we're dreamers? I think we're doing what we're doing right here this morning. You come and you let the psalmist, and you let the poet, and you let the musicians take us up in the higher elevation. And do you ever feel it here in worship uh, that, that sometimes... That the curtains between here and eternity flutter for just a moment. And there it is. It's first the light, and then it's the shape, and it's then the full technicolor dream, not just our dream, but God's dream. I, I hear Andrew and Ann, who are leading our children and youth ministry, and they're leaders. And one of the things I know they hope for, the children and youth of Central, is that this church would be a field of dreams for the young where young people can come 
and they'll hear questions that go beyond, well, what are you going to do for an extracurricular activity this year? Or, or where are you thinking about going to college? No, they're going to find themselves around here grappling with questions like, how can I be a part of something larger than self and broader than hobbies and activities? They're going to hopefully hear that voice that calls them to that wonderful intersection where their gladness intersects with the needs of the world. How, what did Frederick Buechner call that? He said, it's that place where we have the best sense of what it is to sail true north with our lives. That's, those are large dreams. Did you ever have any of those? You, know? you were 16 or 17 and you hitched your wagon to, and then things happen, don't they? Some of those dreams, they just get postponed. We get busy, you know, we get busy managing and leading and fixing and feeding and pleasing. And what happens to some of those dreams? They get put in the closet, they get put in the shelf, and they start collecting dust. <laughs> Have any of you been to a high school reunion in the last few years? Yeah. Kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's some good moments in that, and it's some kind of melancholy moment. At least that's what I found out, you know. Oh, yeah, there's this nostalgic reminiscing about all the fun and exciting and wonderfully characteristic things that you and your friends were interested in. And then there were those dreams and hopes that some of your classmates and that you had. You go back and you realize some of those, they just kind of flattened out or they never get off, got off the ground. But look, take heart. Those dreams aren't dead. <laughs> They're just postponed at times. And, and you know, our faith is gathered around rewords, words like renewal and recovery and rebirth. It's never too late, whether you're 40 or 50 or 70, to go back to that closet and pull some of those bigger dreams out, dust them off, see them where they'll take you. But look, God's dreams go beyond just the dreams we have for our own lives. They're big dreams. Dreams for community, dreams for the world. This is where the major and the minor prophets got together. They, they centered their sense of God's dream around one word. You know that word? It's shalom. We, we don't use that much anymore, at least not in the way they did. It meant more than the absence of conflict. It meant complete wholeness. It meant everyone having everything they wanted, good food, good sleep, physical safety. It meant children and grandchildren playing in the yard and the trees ripe with the fig and the olives and, and, and the vine heavy with the grape. It meant more than that. Beyond home and family, it meant good relations between nations and neighbors sharing fairly in the riches of creation. It meant more than that. It meant a world in which there were no strangers and no enemies because nobody was trying to take anything from anyone else. It meant more than that. It meant justice for all people. The strong using their strength to care for the weak, the weak teaching the strong how to be grateful. And it meant more than that. that God was not a stranger either. God shone in and through all things. Shalom. I, I, I know you say, well, we're a long ways from that. Oh, but it breaks out here and there. I see fragments of it right here in this church. Haywood Street and Habitat, Cairo's prison ministry. Yeah. 
congregations for children. Shalom, if it's a dream, it's God's dream. And who are we if not the dreamers, right? But you hear what I'm talking about today. I, I'm not just been talking about human imagination, this capacity that you have and that I have to, to dream ourselves into a new future. Um, we're talking about spirit-infused dreams. That's, that's what Joel was talking about. He said, God told me, Joel said, that he will be sending his spirit to our sons and daughters. They'll be dreaming dreams. Spirit, can you see that? Prove it. Oh, I can see the effects of it. Spirit itself, uh, it's, it's not readily observable or provable. That's faith though, isn't it? What does it say in Hebrews, you know? Faith, what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Do you believe in that? I do. I do. I have a friend that um, used to talk about um, Aunt Ruby. Aunt Ruby really wasn't his aunt. All the children in this neighborhood apparently called her Aunt Ruby. Ever known somebody? Just everybody called her aunt, and everybody just called her Aunt Ruby. I think because she just loved children and children. And, and I think they loved, loved Aunt Ruby because she knew all these wonderful, wise things about earth and sky and wind and uh, you know, she just she was a wise woman about things in the earth. Uh, she could look at what side of the tree the moss was on, and you, she could give you direction. She could tell you which way was north by looking into a rain puddle. She could look at the acorns in the ground and tell you what kind of winter it was going to be. Okay, Aunt Ruby. So one day, uh, my friend, they were all over at Aunt Ruby's house, and they heard it. Woo, 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 five woos. And I said, what's that? She said, come over here, come over here. She said, that's a rain crow. They said, what? She said, that's a rain crow. You see, this is what happens. They woo four or five times before it's going to be a big rain. They said, really? And, and she said, yes, yeah, really. She said, I've never seen one. <laughs> but she said, I... I've heard them many times. Isn't that interesting? I've never seen one. <laughs> that was a new one on my friend and his friends. But you know what he said? Who were we to argue with Aunt Ruby about rain crows and five whoos? He said, we put our smart money on Ruby. And you know what my friend told me? Two hours later, it rained. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that's what faith is about. Believing in things like Aunt Ruby that uh, we haven't quite seen with our eyes. The people in Joel's day, they could see the devastation of the crops. You see, they were looking through the knot hole in the fence and they could see the locusts and the plague. What he wanted them to see was that that wasn't the deepest part of reality. The deepest part of reality was the unseen dream giver that's never finished with us. In a world of spirit and rain crows, um, 
Some things are not going to be easily seen. So, you know, I think it's best for us to listen to the still, small voice in the five. Woo, 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 woo. Why? Because they will speak to us of a substance beyond what's seen. Spirit. Spirit, said Joel, it will be sent to you. And that will take you to the holiest uh, of all dreams.